In this episode of the Brawn Body Podcast, we're addressing some user-submitted questions. First off, about caffeine consumption. Should we be cycling on and off caffeine? Is it okay to consume more and more caffeine over time? Should we take a break? How does the body become dependent on caffeine? Secondly, all about summer fat loss. How do we kind of cut down, slim down, and tighten up and tone up to get that kind of tight, lean summer body look that everyone seems to be after because, well, it is the middle of June after all. And lastly, a question about intermittent fasting. And more specifically, I've interpreted that into the role of blood glucose and plasma glucose and how blood glucose levels play into fat loss and human performance. So with all that in mind, before we start the show, I want to ask that you please go to social media, make sure that you're following at Brown Body to stay up to date with everything that we're doing and everything that we're posting. Instagram is kind of a big thing for us. We're also on TikTok, Facebook, all that sort of thing. Second, if you like this episode and like the podcast, like what we're doing, please make sure that you share our podcast with a friend and leave a review if you're listening on iTunes. Well, this is certainly a different kind of episode today. It's been kind of weird to have a couple episodes where I'm back in the driver's seat, kind of flying solo, so to speak. I've really loved and appreciated having guests on the podcast, and we've got so many amazing guests lined up for the rest of the summer here. And I just wanted to kind of take a step back for a minute and say, look, you know, for all of you who listen and follow, what questions do you have? What can we be doing right now to make sure that we're giving you the experience, the knowledge, the information that you want to make your life better right now? And we got some great questions that we're going to, uh, going to address one by one here. So the first one was about caffeine. And this comes from a guy who takes pre-workout most days out of the week, drinks a couple cups of coffee every day. So his caffeine consumption is pretty high. And we're talking about, you know, how the body becomes dependent upon caffeine, how much is too much, you know, is there a point where you should stop drinking caffeine, all of that sort of thing. So to start off, we're going to start from that 30,000 foot kind of view. What is caffeine? What does it do? So caffeine, as many of you know, is this glorious drug that Americans overconsume. That's right. We overconsume caffeine. It's actually the most abused drug in our country. Yes, caffeine is a drug. Tolerance to caffeine builds up over time. So the more you consume, the less of an effect it's going to have. That tends to happen with most things we put in our body. So our body has this uh, receptor system that kind of changes based on the stimuli that you provide to it. So the more caffeine you provide to your body, the more receptor activation you're going to get. Your body is going to respond by creating more caffeine receptors so that you'll need more caffeine to elicit the same response. You won't get as strong of a response if you looked at the receptor density in a lower dose. So let's say I have 100 caffeine receptors in my body and I had 100 milligrams of caffeine that I put in, about that in one cup of coffee, one and a half cups of coffee. 
If I did that, then maybe all hundred of my caffeine receptors um, get bound to, and we have a 100% response from caffeine, right? This is all hypothetical numbers here. Now, let's say I had 300 caffeine receptors in my body because I had been kind of drinking uh, higher amounts of caffeine for a long period of time. Maybe I started drinking coffee when I was 16 years old, and now I'm 24, 23 years old. Uh, so seven, eight years of high caffeine consumption every day. So now I've got 300 receptors, and I'm going to take in two cups of coffee. So about 200 milligrams of caffeine. Well, even though I'm going to bind 200 receptors, that response I'm going to get is two-thirds, so 67% in total. Those are, again, hypothetical numbers, but I'm using them to illustrate the fact that as you provide more and more stimulus, your body builds more receptors, and your response per dose will be less effective. So you need to continue to increase the dose of caffeine you give your body if you want the stronger response. The same thing is true for alcohol and pretty much all drugs. We need to kind of slowly increase the dosage over time because our body starts to adjust to it. So with that in mind, like I said, a cup of coffee, about 80 to 100 milligrams of caffeine. It kind of depends on what roast you're using, how much water, all that sort of thing. There's a lot of factors that go into it, size of the uh, cup of coffee. Also, um, you know, pre-workout varies widely. So some pre-workouts will have 100 milligrams of caffeine, about that in one cup of coffee, and some will have four to 500 milligrams, so four to five cups of coffee, maybe even more. So with that in mind, it's important to kind of assess the amount that you consume on a daily basis. And it's also important to consider other sources of caffeine. So tea, for example, tends to be a source of caffeine that people don't always think about. And some types of tea contain 70, 80 milligrams of caffeine per serving. So it can really add up quick there. Dark chocolate also contains high amounts of caffeine. And if you're like me, dark chocolate almonds are a huge weakness for me. So I can literally down a box, a 12-ounce box of dark chocolate-covered almonds. And it tastes amazing, but at the same time, how much caffeine am I throwing in my system? What effect is that going to have long-term? So benefits of caffeine. Why are we even using this thing? So studies have shown that caffeine may improve endurance. It really seems to depend on what type of activity we're talking about. So for example, when we look at runners, especially long distance runners, caffeine doesn't seem like the best thing for them. The studies are mixed though. Some studies show that like a caffeinated gum can help boost performance. Other studies kind of show, hey, look, caffeine does not help and it might even hinder endurance performance. As far as lifting goes specifically, caffeine is one of the things we turn to because it does boost your energy levels, your alertness, your focus levels for a short enough period of time where if you're doing a 30, 45 minute workout, that's kind of our sweet spot for the caffeine you, you'll get a boost in performance. You will feel better. You will feel more alert and awake. And you'll have reduced fatigue. So in that sense, yes, it does have benefit for us when we are training. 
Again, I would not take caffeine prior to a longer duration event. So if you're an athlete who is going into a game or a practice, or if you're a uh, longer duration endurance athlete, I don't really think there's a need for you know taking pre-workout or caffeine before you do whatever it is you're going to be doing. Now, with that said, if you find that you kind of stick to your own routine with caffeine and it works for you, then by all means continue it because every body is unique. The exact physiology and receptor subtypes that are in each human body are unique. And that's where we can't really make blanket statement advice, especially with something like caffeine, because everyone's going to respond differently. Some people can down four or five cups of coffee and not feel a thing. Others drink half a cup and they're bouncing off the wall. So it's very individualized and unique. As far as caffeine withdrawal, this is something that you really have to watch for, especially if you're someone who has been dependent on caffeine. So I'm talking the person who drinks three, four, five cups of coffee a day, pops their pre-workout, you know, their consumption is 700 plus milligrams a day. For that person, you kind of want to start by looking into your uh, medical history, maybe even consulting a doctor, uh, kind of reverse that caffeine uh, withdrawal. So what I mean by caffeine withdrawal is obviously at some point you're going to have to consume less caffeine. And instead of going from 100 to zero real quick, it's a lot better for your body to slowly taper off. If you have caffeine withdrawal, you'll probably have headaches. You'll probably be um, pretty sleepy, tired, fatigue, lethargic, a lot of brain fog, can have some irritability, might have some difficulty focusing and concentrating on what you're doing. So don't go 100 to zero, start slow. So if you're that kind of person who, again, drinks five to six cups of coffee a day, then just slowly taper off. Now, keep in mind, too, that the half-life of caffeine is six to eight hours, roughly. So that says if you consume that cup of coffee, 100 milligrams, in about three or four hours, it'll be cut in half. So it'll be about 50 milligrams left in the body. So caffeine lasts for quite a long time. So, you know, if you're someone who starts to feel that you need to kind of rekindle that fire regularly when that caffeine starts to wear off, there could be some other metabolic imbalances going on that we're going to talk about in a little bit when we talk about blood glucose. As far as if you should take a break from caffeine, it is helpful to cycle on and off caffeine. This is something that's held up in the research to kind of help prevent that tolerance buildup that we've talked about. So yes, it is a good idea to cycle on and off, but you should never go 100 to zero and hit the brakes all of a sudden. Not a good idea. Additionally, you're going to have to factor in the fact that when you start to taper off caffeine, you will see some reduced energy levels. If you're someone who's kind of a fitness junkie, so to speak, you will notice that things can change you might not have the same energy in your workouts. You might not be lifting the same amount or doing the same amount of exercises. You kind of sacrifice short-term performance. So I like to kind of schedule those caffeine break periods around times of lower intensity training periods, right? 
So there's going to be times in your training where you need to deload, kind of lower the weight, refocus on form, mobility, reset, give your body a chance to recover, let all your hard work kind of sink in as far as your gains go. That's when you want to kind of schedule those caffeine resets, so to speak. Those times that you kind of slowly taper off your caffeine consumption and kind of give it a break and then restart. As far as how much time you need to do in order to make that happen, it's going to take about seven to 10 days. So what a lot of research and medical professionals seem to recommend is doing about three weeks of caffeine and then one week of no caffeine. Again, you kind of need to taper though. So build up, build down. So if we're doing that three to one kind of approach, then we do our two and a half weeks normal caffeine consumption. Latter half of the last week, we start to taper down a little bit. That fourth week, we would do no caffeine. So probably drinking mostly decaf coffee uh, because I know a lot of people have found, uh, at least they report in studies, self-report studies, that having the taste of coffee, even though it might not have the caffeine, can really help them. And same thing with pre-workouts too taking a non-caffeinated amino energy supplement can kind of help attenuate some of that fatigue that you uh, would otherwise experience without the caffeine. And then after that week of no caffeine, then you restart and start progressing again as needed. So it's kind of like a cycle, so to speak. And again, it's helpful to do that on a monthly basis, three weeks, one off, to kind of prevent that long-term tolerance buildup. So when it comes to caffeine, that's my main advice. Again, consider the half-life, consider how much you're currently taking in. It might be more than you think because caffeine is in a lot of different things. It's in food, it's in drinks, it's in tea. And taper it. Don't just throw more on the fire. Don't keep adding fuel to the fire because eventually it's all going to go up in flames. Next, talking about summer fat loss and blood glucose. I really liked how this episode shaped up because all three of these things kind of go hand in hand. So let's start with blood glucose regulation because this will kind of bring us right into fat loss. So with blood glucose and kind of what I talked about earlier with fat loss. When we have a increase, or with uh, caffeine, I'm sorry, when we see an increase in blood glucose levels, so maybe we eat a meal and all of a sudden we spike that blood glucose level, right? Insulin is going to kick in and it's going to do its job storing all that blood glucose we just produced from that meal into our fat cells, right? That's kind of basic physiology 101, what insulin does. Well, insulin is so good at storing stuff, it also stores this thing called serotonin in the brain. And serotonin is a precursor to melatonin. So what happens after a high carb meal that really spikes our blood glucose is we see serotonin levels in the brain spike. And all of a sudden, our melatonin levels spike shortly after. And remember, uh, melatonin is produced in our pineal gland. If you need to go back and listen to the episode on the foundations of neuroscience, that was done in the fall of 2020. 
Uh, we kind of explain that process in detail there. But basically, we have that spike in melatonin, so we start to get really tired and sleepy following a high-carb meal. Well, for most Americans, those high-carb meals are breakfast and lunch. When do most Americans consume their caffeine? Or, yeah, their caffeine. Breakfast and lunch. So we consume things like coffee early in the morning. We consume things like coffee midday after lunch when that 2.30 feeling starts to hit. Same with energy drinks. We consume them early, we consume them, consume them mid-afternoon. So instead of treating a high level of melatonin, starting to feel tired with caffeine, because at that point, that high melatonin is kind of putting us in rest or digest, kind of ease it down, so to speak, physiologically, uh, activating that parasympathetic nervous system. Then we respond by hitting it with a big dose of caffeine, sympathetic overdrive, fight or flight. Instead of doing that, why not remove the carbohydrate or reduce the carbohydrate enough to a level that does not spike the insulin level quite so high, right? Because if we don't spike insulin, we don't get that melatonin production, and therefore we won't feel quite as tired. So instead of treating a high blood glucose problem with caffeine, which is only going to exacerbate the problem long term, uh, I'll explain that in a second, why not reduce carbohydrate intake and maybe replace it with something that's gonna be a little more steady and stable like proteins and fats. So we know that high protein, high fat, low carb diets do not spike insulin levels to the same level as high carb, especially when those carbs are simple. Things like white bread, cereals, pasta, even to a certain extent rice, white rice especially. Um, so we wanna avoid those sorts of things uh, in order to kind of keep blood glucose levels steady and stable and more consistent. So early on, it's kind of nice, at least my advice to people, is to consume more fats and proteins, right? Those filling things. Keep those blood glucose levels lower. Then, towards the end of your day, start to use that biohack that we've talked about before. Consume something higher in glucose towards the end of the day. Spike that blood glucose level a little bit. That's going to send your insulin levels higher, and we're going to start upping or increasing our melatonin production. When we do that, we can kind of ride out that, that wave of tiredness and fatigue into bed because it's later in the day, right? We're going to be going to sleep soon anyways. So why not kind of schedule that in your day instead of fighting it? So I said that kind of treating a high blood glucose problem and that melatonin spike with caffeine can make things worse long term. The problem is when we're kind of producing that melatonin and our body starts to go into that parasympathetic tone of rest and digest, time to recharge, refuel, sleep, and then we hit it with sympathetic overdrive of a high dose of caffeine, wake up, get back after it. We're sending our body into mixed signals. Our body wants to do one thing physiologically, but we synthetically altered that. Over time, that's going to produce some very unfavorable changes in our nervous system. We talked about neuroplasticity a couple of weeks ago with Dr. Freitas. Your brain is always listening. Your 
nerves, your nervous system is always listening and adapting. And if we treat tired with sympathetic overdrive every single time, then eventually our brain is going to start equating that feeling of tired with we got to go sympathetic overdrive. And what happens? Heart starts racing. Heart goes crazy. We don't sleep as well. When we don't sleep as well, we have a downward spiral from there. So that lack of sleep can lead to, let's say, decreased energy, decreased focus, more fatigue. And when all those things happen, what do we do? We increase our caffeine consumption. What happens when we increase caffeine consumption? Our heart rate goes up. Our metabolism goes up. We burn more body fat. We're using more energy to do pretty much any given task, right? Caffeine is a stimulant after all. And all the while, our body's adapting to that caffeine. So now we have to consume more caffeine to get the same amount or we have to step away from the caffeine and suck up the fatigue. But we know in America people don't like to step away from the caffeine so they just just keep doing more and more. Well, if we're burning that extra body fat through the caffeine, we're using more energy, we're going to have to replace it because, again, speaking in America, people don't often lose weight unless they're trying. So naturally, their body's going to trigger them to eat more. When you eat more, what happens? Insulin spike, melatonin spike, and then we get tired, we get fatigued. And when we get fatigued, what do we do? We treat it with caffeine. And then the cycle perpetuates and it gets worse and worse over time. Sleep disorders, sleep disturbances, we've talked about this in the past, are a huge problem here in America. Very underreported, undertreated problem. And they can have so many different effects not just the physiological, but even biomechanical. That's right, not sleeping well can literally change your movement patterns. It can change the way your body perceives pain and so on and so on. So that's kind of a vicious cycle of blood glucose and caffeine that we've created. So it's essential to get blood glucose under control. And like we said, a lot of it starts with diet. It starts with what you're eating. Are you eating clean stuff? Are you eating those fats and proteins and filling foods? Or are you eating the cereals, the white breads, the processed stuff that comes from a factory? I'm talking granola bars, candy bars, all of those you know, health bars that actually have 30, 40 grams of sugar in them. Those are not what we're after. What we are after is whole foods. We're after the whole, clean, pasture-raised, high-protein, high-fat content foods. So what that looks like, pasture-raised meats, uh, pasture-raised eggs, uh, full-fat pasture-raised dairy, organic vegetables, wild fruits. Um, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Look at the difference between a wild blueberry and a regular blueberry. Wild blueberries do not taste nearly as sweet as a regular blueberry. Wild blueberries are nowhere near as big as a regular blueberry. They're very different. So make sure you're rewilding yourself and eating kind of the way nature intended. Another key piece to this whole blood glucose regulation process is exercise. So you can actually time your exercise before and after you eat throughout the day to kind of help optimize that blood glucose level. This is something that I really like to do and have noted great success with. So before you eat, do some type of physical exercise. 
take a walk, do 50 squats, jumping jacks, lunges, any kind of calisthenic movement, whatever you can do. Five minutes, that's all it's gonna take. Five minutes, take a fast walk. Five minutes, do some squats, do some lunges, do some push-ups, whatever you can do. When we exercise, we get a short-term spike in blood glucose. It makes sense, right? Our body has to break down fat to fuel our uh, endeavors, whatever physical endeavors those might be. So when we break down fat and turn it into energy, that energy is glucose. So we spike our blood glucose level before we start eating. Now I know what you're going to say, wait, Dan, wouldn't that, wouldn't that spike things even more? Hold on a second. When we spike that blood glucose level, what happens hormonally? We start to perceive ourselves as less hungry because we eat to increase our blood glucose level. So if our blood glucose level is already in a pretty good spot, we're not going to need to eat as much because we're already kind of where we want to be, where we need to be. So with that in mind, we exercise before. We also throw in a little exercise after. So maybe a little walk afterwards, maybe some squats, some push-ups, something light after we uh, eat. Why do we do that? Well, the combination of before and after helps to shift whatever we just put in into our muscles and not let it get stored as fat. Reason, when we exercise, blood flows to our muscles. Blood does not flow to adipose tissue when we're exercising. Instead, blood is going to kind of flow from adipose tissue, right? We're breaking that down, pulling the energy from it because we're breaking down that fat to form glucose. We're kind of taking from the fat to the liver to form glucose. And then from the liver, that glucose goes to the muscles that are working. So a lot of our output as far as blood flow goes during exercise is directly to the muscles. So if we exercise a little bit, even if it's just walking, even if it's just 20 push-ups, 30 squats, 50 lunges, jumping jacks, whatever it is, before we eat and we do it again after we eat, blood flow is going to kind of dictate where all that stuff goes. And in this case, it's going to the muscles. When we send anything to the muscle, I don't care if it's glucose, I don't care if it's protein, I don't care if it's the amino acids that make up protein, Muscles suck that stuff up, even glucose. You've probably heard of muscle glycogen storage in the past. That's a measure of how much glucose your muscles hold, how much they store. So if we take in a meal and we have a decent amount of carbohydrate, we spike our blood glucose a bit, but we've hacked our blood flow to go directly to the muscles, those muscles are gonna soak up that blood glucose and fill up their glycogen tank. When muscles fill up their glycogen tank, what happens? They look bigger. They look stronger. They are stronger. They are functionally better as far as performance is concerned because they have more glycogen store. Glycogen is that short-term form of energy that the muscles use. So if you're a power lifter, if you're in strongman, if you're in you know, a 50 to 100 meter sprint kind of event, you want those muscle glycogen stores because they're gonna give you the ability to do anything for five to 10, maybe even 15 seconds. It's short-term energy stores. We use it quick, but that quick 
kind of short-term energy key, uh, source is so key for so many different activities, even sports. Uh, we look at football. Plays don't usually last for three, four minutes. Plays are quick. Plays are short-term. We look at lacrosse. We look at soccer, the field sports. They're not always going 100% full out all game long, right? It's sudden bursts, and those bursts are dependent on glycogen stores. So the more full your glycogen tanks are, the better your performance is going to be. So when we talk about the blood glucose, obviously there's the nutritional aspect, which we've already talked about, but there's that exercise aspect that we just hit on. Hack that. Hack your blood flow. Send that blood glucose to your muscles if you are going to spike it, because not only will it be better for you, you'll see less fat storage, but it's also going to increase your exercise performance and ability. Now, I said this was going to tie into fat loss, and here's where it kind of comes full circle. I just kind of alluded to it. If we're storing carbohydrate in muscles as glycogen, guess where it's not being stored? It's not being stored in adipose tissue. It's not being stored in fat. So we want to keep those exercise snacks, as I like to call them, in mind. Even if it's just a couple minutes before a meal, a couple minutes after. It's not going to take that long. And, you know, you don't need to, you shouldn't feel like you need to do one big long exercise marathon, you know, hour, hour and a half at some point in your day, check the box and, you know, sit around on the couch, not really move the rest of the day. You want to be up and active and moving all day long. That's what the body was meant to do, meant to be. And if you can time that movement around meals before and after, then you're really hacking your fat loss, your glucose, and all of that to the next level. So highly recommend you incorporate that. I also wanted to talk about intermittent fasting because fasting plays into blood glucose, right? So when we fast, we're not putting in any food. So blood glucose levels should stay relatively constant unless, of course, we do something like exercise, something that causes it to spike. So the benefits of fasting, while there are many, and most of them revolve around metabolic health and uh, autophagy or autophagy, however you prefer to pronounce it, one of the key benefits to fasting is fat loss because that whole period of time, all of our blood glucose that we're using, all that energy is coming from stored fat. We have to break down fat in order to fuel ourselves, whatever we're doing. And I know a lot of people are going to say, but wait, don't we break down protein too? You, you got to realize that even someone that has 5% body fat has more than enough fat storage in their body to fuel most events, almost to the point of like doing a marathon. So think about that. You have a lot of energy stored in fat. It's a very energy dense tissue. One pound of fat is 3,500 calories. So if you're looking at someone who's 100 pounds, right, and they're 5% body fat, then they have 3,500 calories times five. They have over 15,000 calories of body fat just sitting there. The average marathon burns about 3,000 calories. So they might burn one pound of fat doing a marathon. They've got 4% left in the tank afterwards. And that's an extreme example. I kind of rounded the numbers for simplicity's sake there. So fasting 
as long as your doctors approved it for you as safe and as safe is a very effective tool in the toolbox for optimizing metabolic health, assisting in fat loss, and optimizing your blood glucose levels. For more on the metabolic health, highly recommend you go back, listen to our episode with Dr. Stefan Hussey. We kind of delved into that and some of the specific pathways that are relevant there, AMP-K, PGC-1-alpha, in a lot more detail there. So, fasting, great tool in the toolbox. What else can we do for summer? How can we kind of promote that fat loss, make things visible, increase definition? You have to be doing high-intensity interval training. I know a lot of people talk about the benefits of you know, long duration, low intensity, steady state cardio, yada, yada, yada. But high intensity interval training gives you all those benefits without the time commitment. You can burn a lot more calories in a shorter amount of time. It's a lot better for your mitochondria. The mitochondria health and mitochondria density that you get from interval training is unmatched, absolutely unparalleled, right? It doesn't take long, 15, 20 minutes. That's it. Uh, I've mentioned before, and I'll mention again, some of my favorite ways to go about interval training. Tabata style, 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off. Or if I'm doing sprints, 60, 75. 60 second sprint, 75 seconds to recover. Rinse, wash, repeat. It's simple. You don't have to overcomplicate it. You can do this with weights if you want, if you want to count it as kind of like your gym workout. So you can do things like kettlebell swings. You could do burpees if you're bold. You could do uh, pretty much get creative with it. Push-ups, pull-ups, right? You can do kettlebell squats, goblet squats, lunges, jump lunges. Anything that you can do for 20 to 30 seconds, take a break and then do again. And again, get creative with that. Get crafty. Throw in some dumbbell renegade rows, some man makers. Get crafty with it. Um, One thing I will not recommend for those intervals I do not recommend plyometrics. So what I mean by that is box jumps, depth jumps. I don't recommend that as cardio. Reason why? As you do something plyometric like that explosive as cardio, what happens when you're doing cardio, you get tired, your body wears down, form breaks down. So if I'm doing a box jump and I'm trying to get 42, 45 inches high, and I'm starting to get tired, my form breaks down, all of a sudden I slip and fall, and I got four feet to go till I hit the ground, what's gonna happen? My injury risk, pretty darn high. So, just to play it safe, let's keep ourselves grounded. If you wanna do something like a 180 jump squat, something lower intensity like that, by all means, go for it. Speed ladders, great tool. Hurdles, sprints, skips, hops, all great tools. But don't go out and do a four foot three, four foot box jump and count it as cardio because it's not safe as we start to get into those fatigue levels when form starts to break down. I also mentioned sprints, uh, sprints, air assault bikes, uh, row machines, all of that stuff are amazing tools. Uh, again, tools in the toolbox when it comes to interval training. If you incorporate 15 to 20 minutes of interval training, four to five times a week, I guarantee you will see amazing results as far as energy, endurance, and fat loss is concerned if all other variables are constant. So what I mean by that is if you've got your training routine, 
kind of all set up right now, your nutrition plan all set up right now, and you're not seeing the results that you want, add in a few HIIT workouts. Prepare to be a little sore afterwards, right? Make sure you're taking the time to recover optimally, hydrate. If you do that, you will see benefits because the amount of calories you burn both during and after, the physiological benefits of HIIT, especially uh, as it relates to the mitochondria and metabolic health, are unmatched and unparalleled. Now, there's a lot more that you can do besides just exercise and eat right, right? Fasting, we've already talked about. About temperatures, we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Cold exposure. So exposing your body to the cold actually increases the amount of brown adipose tissue in your body. So there's two types of adipose tissue, fat tissue. There's white and there's brown. Brown is the kind that we want because it's more metabolically active, meaning that this stuff helps to keep you warm. It's the kind of fat that we think of when we look at people who are kind of in the colder climates, polar climates. It's the insulation, metabolically active fat. It burns calories for you. That's the kind of fat we want. White fat is what we think of when we think of stereotypical America. So the kind of fat that just kind of builds up, accumulates, and sits there. The kind of fat that we don't really want. We're not really seeking that. So cold exposure helps us shift our body fat storage to more metabolically active forms that burn more calories naturally. So if you want to start doing cold exposure, cold showers, cold baths, ice baths, all great places to start. If you're in the northeast or northwest or any northern part of the country in the wintertime when it's cold out, go outside, step outside, kind of expose your body to the elements, so to speak, soak in the cold. On the opposite side of the cold, it's heat. So sauna, sauna is very beneficial for metabolic health, helps optimize mitochondria density, helps to increase the health of the mitochondria, increase autophagy, so kind of clear out the bad stuff and the gunk that's built up in our cells. And if we clear out the bad stuff, then we make more room for the good stuff, right? Now, as far as the fat shift goes, as far as the research can tell us, we don't see the same shift in fat in heat as we do with cold. However, that heat does kind of send a signal to our body to decrease fat stores, right? Fat is something we use as insulation within our body, right? So with that in mind, if we constantly send a signal to our body that it's warm, that it's hot, our body's going to likely respond by not storing as much stuff as fat. Now you will see other things like increased water retention because your body doesn't want to end up dehydrated, but your fat stores should stay relatively consistent or decrease if all other factors are held constant. So when I say heat, we're talking about things like increased sauna exposure. Uh, so saunas, maybe you move to the desert for a short period of time, like I've done here in Arizona, and the temperature just gets cranked up and all of a sudden you're in the oven, uh, that sort of thing. So we've touched on all of that. We've touched on exercise throughout the day. We've touched on a lot of different factors. Last one I want to touch on is sleep, right? As part of the recipe for success for this summer, you got to make sure you're sleeping. 
You have to get that seven to nine hours. So when you sleep, your body's going to produce most of, if not all of the hormones it needs for the next day. Those hormones regulate your metabolism. Those hormones regulate your body's ability to break down fat and mobilize fat. Those hormones regulate your ability to restore and regenerate muscle tissue. So rebuild muscle. And if you're skimping out on the sleep, then don't expect to keep making results. Sleep is part of the recipe for success here. The last thing I wanna address real quick is alcohol because when it's summer, boy, does everyone love to booze, right? Alcohol will suppress fat burning. For every one drink you have of your stereotypical uh, 5% alcohol, 12 ounce beer, for every one of those you have, expect one hour of fat burning to be suppressed. Now, a lot of people drink a lot more than one 12 ounce can of 5% alcohol beer. A lot of people drink more than just beer. They drink tequila, they drink whiskey, they drink you know mixed drinks, fruity drinks, all kinds of different things, IPAs. So with that in mind, expect you know for every drink you have maybe two two and a half hours of fat burning to be shut down and at times that's a sacrifice you're willing to make right but not something you should be doing all day every day in and out keep that in mind also keep in mind that calorie content in alcohol is very high now calories do not tell the full story uh like i said before you can kind of biohack that exercise snack that we called it to shift where that food, where those calories go and kind of drive them into the muscles instead of fat tissue for the most part. But if you're consuming, you know, 3000 calories of alcohol a day, uh, I hope no one's consuming that amount because alcohol is only seven calories per gram. Uh, that, that's, that's a lot of alcohol if you're hitting that level. Uh, but if you're doing that day in and day out, Obviously, you're going to see increased body fat storage over time. While we're on that topic of, you know, the calorie is not the full story, I want to touch quick on cheat meals and the role that cheat meals play in fat loss. So having a cheat meal can actually spike certain hormone levels uh, the next day, such as cyclic AMP. So having a cheat meal every week or a cheat day once a week can actually spike the hormones and signaling, signaling mechanisms that lead to increased fat loss long term. So it might kind of set you back a little bit for like a short period of time, 12 to 24 hours, but long term over the course of multiple days and weeks, it actually sets you ahead of schedule. So as far as eating goes, you should have at least one cheat day per week, right? The other six days should be pretty clean. Clean, Can't talk all of a sudden. Um, highly recommend you follow uh, what I do is called the 80-20 rule, 80-20 principle. So 80% of the meals we eat are clean. The other 20%, anything goes. And that 20% tends to be stacked up on one day for the most part. So that's my advice as far as uh, fat loss goes. So just to kind of summarize this episode for you, we talked about the importance of cycling your caffeine and recommended that you do three day, three weeks of caffeine consumption followed by a little bit of a taper and one week off. 
we talked about fat loss and the role of blood glucose and recommended exercise snacks to kind of help regulate your blood glucose in addition to altering the timing of carbohydrates during your day. We also talked about the role of high-intensity interval training, heat, cold, and so many other factors, sleep, um, calorie consumption, alcohol, in the making of body fat. So with that, that's going to wrap up this episode of the Brawn Body Podcast, this Q&A episode. We hope that we were able to answer your questions in enough detail and that you were able to learn something from this episode. If you like what we're doing on the podcast, please subscribe, share with a friend, and give us a shout out on social media. Make sure you follow us over at Braun Body. Leave a review if you're listening on iTunes. And until next week, thank you for listening. We'll see you then.